From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. After a decade in Congress, David Cicilline just had the biggest moment of his career as he stood center stage for history. Congressman Cicilline was one of the House managers that outlined the case for impeachment against former President Donald Trump. While Democrats did not secure a conviction, they received the largest bipartisan vote in impeachment history. But will the legacy of the trial be that it only divided the country further? Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside my colleague, 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi, and we are joined in studio for the first time in, I think, over a year by Congressman David Cicilline. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. So we're obviously, we have a lot of ground to cover today, Congressman, but we, we're going to start, master of the obvious here, with the impeachment. There was little chance uh, that you were going to get the 17 Senate Republicans needed to secure a conviction, and that turned out to be the case. Did you go into this knowing it was a lost cause for conviction? Not at all. You know, I think we all, all of the House managers believe that the evidence of the president's guilt was so overwhelming that we really hoped that uh, the Senate, the jury in this case, uh, would listen carefully to the evidence and understand that the president clearly incited a violent insurrection against the government of the United States and would find him guilty. And although we knew it was an uphill battle, uh, we thought if we methodically went through the events as we did just the facts, that we would persuade enough senators to convict him. As you said, it was the largest and most bipartisan impeachment of a president in U.S. history. We didn't reach the two-thirds, but 57 members of the United States Senate found the president guilty of inciting a violent insurrection against the government of the United States. It, you know, I wondered if the first impeachment of the, the president um, over, you know, accused of soliciting foreign influence to, to help an election, if that actually hurt your chances in the second. In other words, would you have had more support from Senate Republicans and possibly the public had the first one not happened? I don't know. Look, we have a responsibility. We, we take an oath of office to defend uh, the Constitution, to honor our oath of office. And when you see evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, the Congress has a responsibility to act, and our founders put in the Constitution one mechanism, that's impeachment. Uh, we did that in the first impeachment, and they acquitted the president then. This was, uh, this was different, because this played out in plain view before uh, the, uh, on live television. Millions of Americans watched this insurrection. They watched the president incite it over many months as he promoted the big lie that he'd actually won the election and had been stolen from him. So this was different in that the events really played out in public, but it was also different because he incited violence against the government of the United States to stop the peaceful transfer of power, which is really the cornerstone of our democracy. You know, we have for hundreds of years transferred peacefully from one president to another without interruption. This is the first time in our history that was interrupted, and it was interrupted because the president incited a violent, angry mob to come to the Capitol and literally stop the peaceful transfer of power. And we had a responsibility to impeach, and we did it in a bipartisan way, the most bipartisan impeachment in the House ever. We did it quickly, and we presented, I think, compelling and overwhelming evidence. Even Mitch McConnell said the evidence was compelling, that in fact the President of the United States committed this offense, but he relied on this sort of bogus constitutional argument to avoid responsibility. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about Mitch McConnell, because uh, every juror had the same vote, but no vote was probably more important than his decision. And there was a time it so seemed like he was wavering and might vote to convict, even though he didn't. He explained his rationale in the Wall Street Journal, and he said, quote, the Constitution 
presupposes that anyone convicted by the Senate must have an office from which to be removed. And he went on to suggest that there would be no stopping point at former officers. You could impeach people left and right and then disqualify them from running for office. Um, you know, he, he, he knows the law too. Why is he wrong? Yeah, he's, he's wrong because for more than 200 years it has been the precedent in the United States Senate and in this country that former officials can be impeached. In fact, the first impeachment ever conducted in the Congress of the United States was of a former United States Senator. Then there was the Blount case, Belknap case. These were all former officials. So it was well accepted that former officials could be impeached. And there had, that has always been the tradition in the United States Senate. And the reason that exists is because if you allow someone simply to resign, they could commit the most serious defense against the United States and simply resign and then avoid responsibility. So it had always been the rule of the Senate and the precedent that former officials could be impeached. This sort of January exception, as Mr. Raskin described it, this idea of like, you can do really bad stuff at the very end of your term and avoid responsibility is a very dangerous precedent because it will invite misconduct if people think, oh, we can just get away with it as long as you do it late enough. So. It was an, a way to avoid, I think, the overwhelming evidence of the president's guilt, which Mitch McConnell So you don't buy the constitutional argument no, made by Senate Republicans? No, he's wrong. I mean, it's, it's contrary to 200 years of precedent. Uh, there were 140 constitutional scholars who all agreed that the president could be impeached and convicted even as a former official. But there were and also remember, he was impeached disagreed. while he was in office for conduct he committed while in office. The only reason he, the trial didn't happen is because Mitch McConnell didn't bring the Senate back into session to receive the articles. So it's a little rich for him to say, oh, too bad it's too late. I think, again, it was a way of him trying to have it both ways, to confront the overwhelming evidence of the president's guilt, but avoid doing what he should have done by, by relying on this bogus constitutional Let me claim. ask you about a different Republican, Senator Mike Lee. Uh, you, got, you had two uh, sort of dramatic exchanges where he objected because you were mentioning uh, a, a telephone conversation involving the president as you laid out your case. I, an a Associated Press fact check did say you were correct. You, had, you were right in how you put it and you weren't wrong. But especially after the first time, you knew Mike Lee was going to jump up and get upset. And the second time, you know, just as a as trial strategy, was it wise to keep kind of poking the bear with him when, you know, our phones and Twitter blew up? Did you see Congressman Cicilline just got it wrong again? Even if the fact checkers said you had it right, it created this this. Well, appearance. it didn't really involve Mike Lee at all. That that evidence was that Mike Lee received a phone call that was intended for Senator Tuberville. He then. Handed, that was from the President of the United States. He handed the phone to Senator Tuberville, and they had a conversation in which the President, in the middle of the insurrection, while his own Vice President was under violent attack, was still trying to get Senators to object to the certification. So Mike Lee really didn't play a role other than handing his phone to Senator Tuberville. I think he was just fearful of being involved in any way, uh, I think because of his you know, fear of the President, that he didn't want to look like he was a witness or contributing yeah, to, in any way. To Ted's question, the House managers retracted that the first time around, just like, it's not important, so let's not even deal with it and move on. But you brought it up again. Well, it's in, it was evidence in the record, and it's important evidence because it showed the President of the United States in the middle of this violent attack on the Capitol wasn't, didn't call for help, didn't send troops, didn't send backup, didn't inquire, how can I be helpful? He's on the phone trying to secure a senator to object to the certification. It went to the President's state of mind, which was really critical in the case. All right, it wasn't lost on Ted and I that uh, when you arrived at our studios today, 
um, that you were you had a security detail with you, and, and we know that your office was bombarded with threats for your role in the impeachment proceedings. Now that the president was acquitted and the trials in the rearview mirror, have the calls and emails to your office of the threatening nature have they calmed down a little bit, or is it still pretty intense? Uh, there, you know, they continue. That's uh, I, I, you know, I expect that to go on for so, uh, some time, but it'll dissipate, and uh, I won't need a security detail forever. Do you, uh, did you, was there anything that rose to the level that law enforcement was, I mean, they're concerned enough to have a security detail, but anything that led to an investigation or anything, or it was just- I, I don't know. When, when we receive threats, there's a protocol in place to report those to the Capitol Police, and they make assessments and judgments about what security is necessary and how to respond. But you're not fearful? after no. the experience. Let me ask you one more about, uh, there's other things we do want to talk about, but this was such a big moment. Um, I, I want to ask you one other trial strategy thing, and that was about Saturday morning. Uh, we thought, I, I wrote in my column that I thought there would be a vote Saturday afternoon, then I thought, oh, they're going to make me a liar, because all of a sudden there was a, the House managers moved and asked for a vote on witnesses, which hadn't been expected. You, you win that vote to call witnesses, then there's confusion in the Senate for an hour or two or whatever, and then the House managers back off, there's no call for witnesses. Uh, and I guess basically it seemed like either there was a mistaken strategy by going for witnesses that morning or uh, some people say you all kind of chickened out because it was going in a direction you could no longer uh, control. What happened? It's actually a third thing. We got what we wanted. So the witness question is raised at the conclusion of the presentation from both sides. That was in the Senate resolution. So after we presented our case, we had the opportunity to listen to the president's defense. The president didn't present any evidence to refute a single factual uh, uh, assertion we made during the presentation of our case. So we didn't find a need to present additional witnesses. We presented dozens of witnesses through videos, through statements through the media, a number of uh, other statements. So we had presented a number of witnesses. The question arose the night before when we learned for the first time that Jamie Herrera Butler had reported about a, a conversation. Congresswoman that's right, from California. Who had reported that she had a conversation with Mr. McCarthy in which he acknowledged that in the middle of this attack, he called the President of the United States and said, we need help, we're under attack. The President said, oh, that's Antifa. Kevin McCarthy said, no, Mr. President, these are your supporters, we need help. And he said, well, Kevin, I guess they care more about the election results than you do, which was just sh you know, shocking uh, new testimony. So we thought it was very important that come before the Senate jury, and we intended to call her as a witness. Uh, we did, weren't successful in getting her. She sort of went silent on us after that statement was issued. So we had to figure out how do we get this testimony before the jury without having her physically there. The Republicans agreed that they would submit her statement for the record, which would become part of the full evidentiary record. We would rely on it and be able to argue it. And the advantage to that is we didn't have to run the risk that they would have the opportunity to bring a single witness in rebuttal. They could bring in <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. We didn't have any confidence that he would be truthful. He could say, geez, I don't remember that. Or, you know, I know the president. If he but knew about been, this, he would. Congressman, it's been reported that Senator Coons from Delaware came to the room where the impeachment managers were. He's very close to President Biden. And in some form or fashion told you, like, cut it out. What are you doing? No, Why look, are we extending our decision, this? Our decision was we got the evidence before the jury in the best form with no risk. And that was our goal, to be sure that the jury knew this conversation happened, it was a sworn statement, it was put into the record. So we achieved that objective, which was our goal in calling her as a witness, without the risk of any additional witnesses. So we got exactly what we wanted, the Republicans agreed to it, and it was a big victory.
We're going to go to a break in a couple of minutes here. I just want to kind of step back and wrap up this conversation on the impeachment trial, and, and we'll move on in the second half. But uh, when you uh, step back, take a look at it, Republican or Democrat, an impeachment trial over an attack on the Capitol is, is huge. Um, and I, I wondered if you appreciated in the moment the historic nature of what was happening, or were you just so consumed with getting ready for the trial and what was going on? Uh, you know, I think you, you do, when I was first asked to be an impeachment manager, it sort of hits you, the gravity of this moment and the responsibility that you have. You are there defending the decision of the House to impeach the President of the United States, but not for any crime, but for inciting a violent insurrection against the government of the United States. Just when you say those words, it's sort of shocking. Uh, the evidence was that the president incited folks to come to the Capitol and disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, which is so critical to our democracy. So yeah, I think when I was first appointed, it struck me, the gravity of the moment, but then you get into the work and you have a case to present and you have evidence to review and you have arguments to prepare. Um, but it was not lost on us throughout the proceedings the gravity of our responsibility and the consequences of the work we were doing, which is why we worked around the clock hard as a team to make the most persuasive case to the jury that we possibly could. Did you could. have to dust off that part? You haven't been in law school in a while. You haven't <laughs> been a practicing attorney in a long time. Was it challenging to kind of ramp back up again? It was, particularly since it was my first time I've ever prosecuted a case. That's true. You know, most of my life <laughs> yes. I was a defense lawyer, so this was a new role for me. But. It was a tremendous honor to have the privilege of defending our democracy, having been a student of the law and a public official for so long. It was a great source of pride for me to have this enormous privilege. All right, we're gonna take a break. When we come back, a lot to cover, including the future of Facebook. Our guest this week, Congressman David Cicilline. Stay with us, you're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is Congressman David Cicilline. Congressman, we spent the entire first half in the impeachment trial, so we're going to move on to another topic. And uh, nothing is bigger right now than, than the pandemic. And I want to talk to you about the vaccine rollout. Uh, 12 News asked Harvard, uh, Harvard researchers to assess the state's vaccine distribution using CDC data. The state received an F and ranked it dead last in the country for vaccines distributed per capita. No topic is more important to your constituents right now. Are you frustrated with the pace of, of rollout in this I, state? I think you're absolutely right. There is no issue more important than making certain we get vaccines into the arms of people immediately. Uh, and I think that's the responsibility of the state and local federal government to be doing everything we can to do that. Uh, I think we clearly had some problems with the rollout here, obviously. Uh, I know the uh, director of the Department of Health yesterday talked about moving to a central uh, portal. I think a lot of states have had a lot of success with that. Um, a very big piece of the new COVID relief package relates to additional vaccines and additional resources for vaccine distribution and testing. Uh, and so that relief package will focus additional resources on this, but it's, it's got to be a number one priority. People are hurting. One of the key strategies in crushing this virus is getting everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible, uh, and that's a big piece of this new COVID relief package. You've always been an ally of Gina Raimondo, who is on her way out uh, to become Commerce Secretary, but look, a lot of people think part of what went wrong and why Raimondo wound up so slow is that she's kind of do, trying to do two jobs at once, get ready to be Commerce Secretary while still being the governor. 
you know, would Rhode be better off if she stepped aside, prepared for her new job, and let Dan McKee take over now? Look, I, I think there's going to be a lot of time for people to make assessments about blame and pointing fingers. What we need to do is make sure we're doing everything we can to get vaccines out as quickly as possible. I think the governor has done a terrific job in her six years as our governor. I think she's going to be a great Secretary of Commerce, and I look forward to working with the new governor, Governor McKee. But we have to work together as partners and making sure we're doing everything we can to get this right. This is an urgent priority for every single person who works in government. I think the uh, Dr. Nicole and Alexandra Scott yesterday uh, said make it simpler and faster. I think that's right. And we're going to continue to work closely with them to make sure that happens. Have you talked to Dan McKee yet? Yes. What did you talk I about? I just what extended up? my uh, best wishes to him and told him I look forward to working with him and I would help in any way to be sure that he was successful. It's important to our state. With the uh, relief package, you obviously support direct uh, payments to American households. Do you think there should be an income get, uh, cap? Well, um, the, the proposal we have now is for, a, a, this was President Biden's proposal, is for an additional $1,600, so that's the $2,000 payment. Um, that it provides $1,400. $1,400, yes. Sorry, so a total of $2,000. Uh, in addition to that, it's obviously extended unemployment, it's uh, nutrition assistance, it's rental assistance, it's mortgage assistance, um, state and local aid, which for me was a number one priority to help local communities and state governments deal with the shortfalls that the pandemic has produced. Uh, it'll bring about uh, $1.7 billion to Rhode Island, about $600 million. But those million. direct payments, 150,000 households, 75,000 single, what, do you, do you um, support a cap? You know, I, I don't know what the current proposal is with respect to a cap. I think we want to be sure people who need the help get it, and people who don't need the help uh, are obviously less concerned. We want to be sure that struggling families who are facing real challenges get the resources they need. So I think if a cap is a part of the solution, that, that's fine. But we want to be sure that the money is being used for people who are in real need. And, you know, there are 44,000 44, Rhode Islanders who are out of work last month. We've lost almost 2,500 Rhode Islanders to this virus. So this relief package is bold. It's going to make a real difference. It's going to help small businesses. It's going to help struggling families. It's going to make a real difference for local and state government. And you expect it to pass the House next week? Yes. Um, so I have to ask you about something, and we've done this for like 10 years. 2022 is coming, and the state is likely to lose one of the two U.S. House seats. And you've danced around this with me 500 times. Oh, I think we'll keep it, whatever. Every in analysis I've seen says Rhode Island just is not going to have enough people when the census is done to keep that seat. Uh, do, do you think Rhode Island's going to lose the seat first? I of? hope we don't because, I, you know, again, it will depend a lot on how well our census count is relative to other states. I think we had a good census count here. If other states underperform some, then, we, then I think we have an opportunity to hold on to two seats. The reason it matters a lot that we hold on to two seats is so much of the resource allocations that are made by the Congress depend on the number of congressional seats you have. So it'll be a significant financial loss to Rhode Island for you know, aid to our senior centers and educational aid and infrastructure assistance and all the resources that come from the federal government. So it matters a lot to Rhode Island that we continue to have two members of Congress. I hope we will. But to be honest with you, Ted, like, we're in the middle of the worst public health crisis in our lifetime. As I said, 2,500 Rhode Islanders have died. 44,000 Rhode Islanders are out of work. People are hurting. This is not a time to kind of be self-indulgent and start contemplating what my future is. What? My focus I is on what 
what I can do to help Rhode Island families right now. I just got reelected just a few months ago, I would note, uh, by uh, more than 50 points, which is the first time that's happened in two decades. Yes, to I, any saw, repen- I remember representative that representative. election. So my, but- <laughs> my experience is work hard, do your job, deliver results. You the any, politics will take care of themselves. Have you had any conversations with Congressman Landry about who's not going to run if no, there's only one I seat? Have Come you on. haven't discussed it at no. once. Have your chiefs of staff discussed it? No. So, what, so would you consider uh, stepping Look, aside? we're not. We're, I haven't given it any thought. My focus is on my that. work. I, you're, you're, well, you, the other question is, shouldn't you be having those conversations when no, it's look, just around the corner? What we should be Your doing is focusing be on lose. what we should be doing is focusing on the urgent challenges facing Rhode Islanders. People are facing an economic crisis, a healthcare crisis. All of my energy, and I know all of Congressman Lange's energy, is devoted to responding to the needs of Rhode Islanders. We have lots of time for politics. Okay. Uh, so, look, I, I do want to touch on antitrust real quick. Uh, you remain the chairman of the subcommittee uh, on antitrust, and next week that committee will be holding hearings uh, to consider laws to, quote, address the rise in abuse of market power online and to modernize the antitrust laws. I want to look at Australia real quick. Uh, Facebook has stopped the ability for news stories to be posted on their pages in Australia because lawmakers there are considering a bill that would require social, the social media giant and others to pay media companies for its content. Would you support similar legislation here? Well, I've actually introduced a bill, uh, the Journalism Competition Act, which is intended to provide a level playing field so that publishers and online producers of content could negotiate and have a level playing field with large technology platforms to address exactly this issue. Uh, But it's really a symptom of a much larger problem. As you know, uh, I led an investigation for 16 months. It was a bipartisan investigation of the largest technology platforms and the kind of anti-competitive behavior that they've engaged in. We are going to begin work now to implement and put forth a number of solutions to this. But this is a big challenge. These are monopolies with tremendous market power that uh, are crushing competitors, uh, crushing innovation, causing real harm to privacy, and uh, we have a lot of work to do to make these markets work. You do have uh, Ken Buck, who's the Republican on the committee, does seem at least supportive of potentially working together on this, so there could be bipartisanship around it. But we do also hear from conservatives, Republicans who are our viewers, who say they see the president getting banned, and yes, obviously there are specific acts he took that led the media's, but that's, it just, again, shows the enormous power they have, and people say, well, wait, you know, today it's Trump, but what if it's somebody you like down the road? Do you worry about that despite your own hostility to President Trump? Well, I mean, look, these platforms have enormous power. They're monopolies. They have, you know, market dominance, unlike they have no competitors. So part of the reason you have to worry is because they have so much market power. They can keep people out. They can change an algorithm and put somebody out of business. They can decide to delist your company or your product from Amazon and your put out of business. So yes, monopolies are dangerous because they have so much power uh, that they they don't allow competitors. So that's the kind of central part of the investigation. And Ken Buck and many other Republicans have been real partners in this work. And I think you will see most of the solutions that we will put forth in terms of legislation, not all, but most will be bipartisan. And I think that's good because this this is not a Democratic or Republican problem. This is a problem for our economy. It's a problem for our democracy. And we've got to fix it. A couple of minutes left here, Congressman. Uh, You have been a champion of the Equality Act. That's up for a vote next week in the House. The Equality Act would recognize members of the LGBTQ community as a protected class like 
like race and national origin, so on and so forth. Opposition to the bill largely comes from those concerned it would infringe on the rights of people who have religious beliefs in conflict with gay rights. And Utah Senator Mitt Romney wants strong religious liberty protections in that bill. Are you open, open to adding that language? Look, the, the Equality Act simply says you, can't, you know, discrimination is wrong. Every single person is entitled to be treated equally and fairly under the law, and you cannot discriminate. That is, you can't fire someone from their job, kick them out of their apartment, deny them in service in a restaurant because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. All of the religious exemptions that exist in the civil rights law would apply in the Equality Act. We're not asking for more protection or less protection. Simply the same religious exemptions would apply to those two categories. But, but you that. need 10, 10 votes in the Senate. And if this is important to someone well, like Mitt Romney, who's not extreme to the right, clearly, um, then... We're going to get. We're going to work hard to get the 10 votes, but you can't allow a claim of religious exemption to eviscerate the protections of the Equality Act. The civil rights law are designed to make sure that people's rights are protected. And Briefly, do you think, because we're up against yeah. time, do you think the language Romney or people like him, I'm sure you've looked at it, is is would do that? You yes. Think, you I think do. Mitt Romney's proposal is, is goes too it far? It would eviscerate the Equality Act, absolutely. Um, about a minute left, uh, going back to the relief package, you know, we're talking about direct payments and all the money to cities and towns, all that. Do you ever worry at all about the massive debt that the country is racking up right now? Look, uh, every economist I know has said we have to do a big package. And if we don't do a big package, it will delay our recovery even longer. So it's a question of making an investment now so we can recover. And the best way that you you know do, uh, reduce the deficit is to grow the economy, get people back to work. But right now, I'm worried about the real crisis that Rhode Islanders face, both the health care crisis, the economic crisis, and getting them the relief they need and rebuilding our economy. But as you print this money, could it be at the cost of something else down the road, infrastructure? Well, products? I think the economists have said, look, we have no choice. We've got to do this now, uh, because if we don't do this, it will delay the recovery. It will make our economic recovery more difficult. Uh, and the danger is doing something too small. So this is a time to address the needs of the American people, do it in a robust way. So we're, we're crushing the virus, rebuilding the economy, getting people back to work so we can return to normal life. In this Congressman country. David Cicilline. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us on the program. If you missed any of it, it's on WPRI.com. Don't forget to check out our podcast. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.